on the back of the worship guide there, there are a few places for you to fill out. This is kind of in three parts today. The first is pretty heady, meaty, theological content. The next two are sort of practical outworkings of that first point. So we've got some places for you to look at there. And I want to start by talking at the very top. There's a question here that we've been answering in the series. The questions on the top of those study notes, we're going to put this on screen for you. Here's the question. What if, what if we were free from the obligation to do good that we could never meet so that we could increasingly be good? Now, this is sort of a paradoxical kind of way to ask this. It's a little counterintuitive, but the question is, what if we were free from the obligation to be good that we could never meet in the law, which we've talked about a little bit last week and this week we will too, so that for the purpose of being able to more and more with time be actually good. Paul's message here in Romans and in Romans 8 is that you are already free. You are already free to be good in a way that comes from God's character and nature. His heart of perfection that through Jesus Christ was lived by the Spirit can be given to us by that same Spirit so that we can live God's character and nature. Crazy, crazy idea. But that's what Paul's message here is. You are already free. But in simple terms, let me tell you how this works. Four steps. The first is this. (laughs) We try to be good. How's that working for you? Number two, we infinitely fail. Not just like partially, not just like I can measure the amount by which my sin doesn't meet up to God's glory. It's, it's that we infinitely fail in our flesh resulting in death. Spiritual, physical, every definition of death you want. So we try to do good, but we infinitely fail in the flesh resulting in death. So God comes and he has to do it for us. He does it for us in the spirit which results in life. And then he says to us, and this is where we are, go, okay, now it's your turn. Go be good. In simple terms, that's how this Christian life works. But here's what happens. Here's what happens. We're going to keep this up here for a little while. Number three, no matter how many times God tries to tell us, this is what I've done. This is what I did. Do you remember the cross? Hello, I'm the lamb. The sacrifice. No matter how many times God tries to to communicate this to us in his word, in prayer, in our time with other believers, in our minds, in our hearts, no matter how many times God tells us about the truth of number three, we keep trying to do steps number one and two better. I mean, I I know that that's a lot of where I've lived in my life. Trying to be good, realizing my failure. I know the truth of three, but but you know what? I'm I'm just going to go back up to one. I'm going to go back up to one. I'm going to try to be good, gooder, like as much as I possibly can. I'm going to do the build a better widget approach to my spiritual life, okay? Because that's what I've learned. Right? I mean, that, like, like that's when, when the gospel gets perverted for, for the purpose of human centered focus and self righteousness, that's the gospel we teach one another, which is just stick it number one and two, do gooder, keep working on it. Number three, we'll get there eventually. When you're, when you're super spiritual, then you can get there. But number three is something that, you know, it, it, it's here's why grace is such an infinitely amazing, beyond our greatest descriptions of love kind of thing. That we can't imagine, we can't even possibly imagine, and then number three is how it works. 
I mean, it is so beyond what we could ever expect of anybody to give to somebody else that, that a perfect, sinless, holy, infinite God of the universe who created us, that we have infinitely offended by our rebellion against him, that he would come, the person of Jesus, and say, I have forever forgiven you, forever forgiven you, and you are going to be good with me because I have justified you. We, we know in our bones, we know in our flesh by the way we operate, the way we speak, the way we behave, that, that what God gives us and what we deserve, there's an infinite chasm there. So we struggle. We struggle with the truth that it can't possibly work that way. So this struggle of getting back to number one and two, the build a better widget approach to your spiritual life. Uh, unfortunately, friends, that's what Paul calls flesh that results in death. Can't get there. No, ma- no, matter, no matter what we do and what God has done, there's going to be an infinite gulf. And, and we look at what He's done and we say, that is awesome. I mean, that is, that is amazing that God can do that. But I know that I'm right here. And, and, and this gulf, I, I, I mean, I, so I'm going to do number one and two and try to increase. And as we do that, we realize there's no, no doing that. Here's the simple and profound truth. The simple and profound truth that Paul is teaching us in Romans that we're going to focus on today that can revolutionize our Christian life if you let it simmer, if you let it get in your heart and in your head and let it simmer. Here's what Paul says. In Christ, you already have infinitely more than you could possibly need. Write it down, Facebook it, tweet it, memorize it. In Christ, you already have infinitely more than you can possibly need. We're going to leave that up for a second here. I've chosen these words carefully. Not that in Christ, you might someday have infinitely more than you possibly need. And I've chosen the word infinitely because it doesn't matter how good you think you are, how smart you are, how much money you make, how much security you have, how much, you know, according to the world's definitions, goodness that you possess, you will always be infinitely less than worthy of God's perfection and His holiness. You can't have a relationship with Him. So, so you already have infinitely more than you could possibly need. I want us to just focus on that today and the three things that come from that so that it simmers in our heart, gets in our head, so that we can learn to live what we have. That's what Paul's saying here. Live what you have. You know, I, I know that we talk about, okay, we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit. We're going to talk about how you can grow in Christ. And your perceptions of this uh, six-week series are probably rock and roll. He will finally tell me the secret key to success by which I can move forward to you know, achieve that sort of number one and two, build a better widget thing so I feel better about that sin of mine. I mean, let's be honest. That's how we think about, this is what, this is what Paul's going to give us. I'm going to have a tool. I'm going to have a tool to do better. <laughs> Here's what he says, hold on, chill out, slow down, wait. First, you have to get this. Live what you have. You already have infinitely more than you can possibly need. And the first way he describes this in the first four verses is this. Jump to verse 1 there. We're going to keep our noses in Scripture here. This first section is sort of the theological underpinning of this uh, live what you have doctrine. It's realize your justification. Verse 1 says this, There is therefore, 
There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Go back to the beginning there. It says, there is therefore, press pause, we're going to camp out here at 8.1 for a bit and sink our teeth into this truth. In Romans, there are three major therefores. Three major therefores, one at five, one at eight, and one at twelve. Romans five one, Romans eight one, and Romans twelve one. Romans five one says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So Romans five talks about justification, the declaration that we are counted righteous before God because of Jesus' perfect work on the cross and in his life for us. Romans 5.1, Romans 8.1, which we're studying today, there are therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So Romans 5, justification. Romans 8, we have uh, sanctification. We're just going to say no condemnation. And then Romans 12.1 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Notice it says bodies, plural, one living sacrifice. He's just described the church. To present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So we've got Romans 5, justification, declaration of righteousness. Romans 8, not condemned. Romans 12, equipped to serve. That's the Christian life. That's sort of an encapsulated way of thinking about Uh, the whole of Romans. So here we are in that second of those three major therefores. And he says this by saying, therefore, you may want to circle that therefore, highlight it, underline. This is what he's saying. You are, he's reminding us before we move forward, you are fully justified. You are counted righteous because of the work of Christ. That's Paul's recurring message in the first half of Romans. You were unrighteous and your life was an offense to God, but now you have been fully justified, counted righteous. And now he's saying this, not only are you counted righteous, not only are you justified, but you are actually, not like pretend, not figuratively. A lot of times in scripture we take literally what is meant figuratively and we don't take as literally sometimes what we think should be figurative. This is one of those things that is is more literal than we think. Like you are actually called to live out your justification in reality. He's saying you're justified, but you're actually able to live out and from and in keeping with God's spirit, which is put inside you. And that's the process we call, this is the next blank in your outline, sanctification. And it's a process. Sanctification is the process of the Holy Spirit increasingly transforming us into the image of God that was marred or destroyed. There's some debate about marred or destroyed. I think destroyed. Others think marred. That when Adam and we sinned against God. There's also debate about Adam and we, but I think Adam and we, so this is how I said it. Sanctification is the process of the Holy Spirit increasingly transforming us into the image of God that was marred or destroyed when we rebelled against him. Against God. Paul assumes in Romans that if you are justified, you are being sanctified. This isn't like an either or. This isn't for super spiritual Christians. This is if you are justified, then you are being sanctified. You are increasingly being made into the image of God. There's no getting away from this. You don't like you know, hold your hand up to it, shake your head no like a two-year-old. God is, is going to make you into his image if you're going to spend eternity with him. So, so it's something that the believer has to just say, okay, okay, Jesus, whatever you want to do with me. Here's, here's the difficulty for some of us. A lot of us don't easily get to that place 
That, that broken bottom of one's self place. And when you experience that, and you say, okay, Lord, whatever it is, bring it on. <laughs> then the Spirit can start to change you. Then, th- then God can, can continue to remake you into His image. Until you hit those places where you realize that you're at the end of yourself. In fact, dying to one's self daily might be a way of saying, come to the end of yourself, maybe about 6 a.m. so that that's a good start to your day. So, let me explain Paul's argument this way. Another way of kind of encapsulating everything he said uh, up to this point. Christ isn't, and this is super cool truth, Christ isn't a fly-by-night, one-and-done Savior. The reality of what Paul is saying is that it wasn't just that Christ lived the perfect life up to a certain point so that the cross could work for you, and that was it. Jesus today, now, this second, as we speak, is still living a perfect, sinless life. So that your justification by which He declared you righteous on the cross wasn't a one-and-done, fly-by-night kind of thing. It's something that exists now so that Jesus as perfect means your justification as righteously declared in relationship with God still stands. Jesus is perfect this second so that your justification still counts. So this infinite chasm between our sin and God's perfection uh, is always going to be leveled by Jesus' perfection for us. It's like, sort of like at the cross we go, okay, Jesus, I need you. I know that I have infinitely sinned against you. I know that my rebellion means that I can't have a relationship with you. And I am so glad that cross happened. I'm so glad that cross happened because now I can, I can, I can do that by myself. I can bring myself up. That's numbers one and two. Number three is Jesus still stands as perfect so that your justification still works. That's super cool truth. And it's freeing truth. It's freeing truth. And it means this. We are free from the law. This is the next few blanks for you. We are free from the law that we couldn't keep but that Christ did and He does, so that now in Christ we can fulfill the law. That's that's the message here in in what Paul is saying. That's what all this therefore means. And he's going to unpack it in the next three verses. We'll get to that in just a second here, but we're camping out at verse 1. And here's what all this therefore means. It means we are free from the law that we couldn't keep, but that Christ did and He does, so that right now if we have Him through the Spirit's work in us, we can fulfill the law. Here's another way of saying it. In Christ, what were empty works that condemned us become spiritually lived out works that confirm. What were empty works that we used to hold up to Jesus and say, here, I'm good enough, right? I mean, right here. (laughs) That was empty. Flesh. We did that by our own power. And until you realize that was your own power, then, then there's, no, there's no way that you're going to have the Spirit working in you 
to recreate you after the image of God. So when we have Christ and His Spirit in us, what were works that condemned us now become spiritually lived out works that confirm. That might be a capital S there instead of a lowercase s. Paul is reminding us here of what our justification meant so that we can live out of that into sanctification. That's why he says, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Not like later, not like someday, not like when you've got enough uh, you know, in your account that you feel justified. He's saying you are justified. There is now no, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Which is to say that no person, no empty work, no thing can condemn you because you've already been set free in Christ Jesus. One more thing before we move on to verses 2 and 4 and following here. I want you to consider this about this no condemnation thing. Here's kind of how it works. I want you to take all of the, the sin of your life sort of in your mind here. Take it all, all the ugliness, all the nastiness, all the gossip, all the hatred, all the sort of uh, things that you thought were just funny sarcasm, but you really meant it. All those kinds of things that are the white lie kinds of things as well that really count as sin and rebellion. Put them together in this big, ugly, nasty ball of sin, okay? In your mind. Okay, like this. Okay. <clears throat> the evil one comes along. And he looks at you. <laughs> and he looks at this big ugly ball of nastiness. And, and you know it's an ugly ball of nastiness. And, and you know as well that this doesn't describe it. And so he comes along and he points at you and he says, Ha! I see it. I know it. You're a filthy, ugly poser. You're a poser. What makes, you, what makes you possibly think that God could accept you and love you with this big, ugly ball of nastiness and ugliness? Romans 8.1 says this, and here's the picture. We stand behind a Savior on the cross whose perfect sinless life puts us in relationship with God so that, so that when, when the accuser looks at you, when the evil one says, there's no possible way you could ever achieve that, you sit there and go, yeah, I know. I'm with this guy. I'm with, I'm with this guy. There is therefore now, because of this guy on the cross, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's what Romans 8.1 communicates to us. Super cool truth. Super cool truth. And out of that, everything else that we're going to say today follows. I mean, look at, look at what you already have in this. This perfect, sinless Savior who died for you. Look at it. If you look at Him and you love Him, and you love Him more and more, you will want to serve Him and please Him because you, you can't possibly ever imagine perfect, sinless God dying on the cross for you. That's why you want to live for Him. That's why your heart wants to do what's good and right. That's what sanctification has to get us to before we move forward. Jump in at 2 and 4 here. It just sort of encapsulates real quickly the truth of justification. 
There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Verse 2, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. We've been freed from the law, from the power of sin to condemn us. So verse 3, for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, weakened in our flesh, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. In other words, Jesus came down in the form of flesh. If he hadn't come as the flesh that was condemning us by ourselves, if he hadn't come as flesh, it wouldn't have worked to save us. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. He fulfilled the law for us. So verse 4, in order that, whenever you see so that, in order that, circle that, underline that. It's like a therefore. You have to ask what's there for. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. We've said this a number of times over the last few years. God's project is to inhabit people. God's project is that you are the temple. And the Spirit is how that works. The Spirit is how that works. Sanctification, if you want a cool little snippet here. Sanctification is God inhabiting people so that we can realize our justification. I mean, and I, mean, I mean realize. I don't mean like live like it. I mean make real. We make real the declaration of his righteousness for us. Sanctification is God inhabiting people by the Spirit so that we can realize our justification. And these next two practical admonitions come out of that sort of theologizing we've been doing for the last 10, 15 minutes. Go ahead and look at uh, verse 5 here, Romans 8. It says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. He sets up a contrast here. Those who live according to the flesh set their mind on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. In the Greek, actually, there's no is there when it says to set the mind on the flesh is death, to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. He, he sort of takes it away, and Paul says it's so definitive that it's like a noun, like to set on flesh, death. He says it sort of emphatically like that. To set the mind on spirit, life and peace. And he says this, verse 7, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, is in rebellion to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Paul is sort of tracing the route here. We're going to pause for just a second here in these three verses. Paul is sort of tracing the route here of what is produced in a person. He says that the fruit of flesh is death, but the fruit of spirit is life and peace. And he's tracing it back to what he calls a mindset. Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the spirit. In those three verses, five, six, and seven, he's used this word mindset or talked about setting the mind five different times. Five different times. It's the entire way, a mindset is the entire way that the mind perceives the world. Another word for it would be um, a paradigm. A, a change in mindset is a paradigm shift. Now, I want to uh, sort of illustrate this by, by telling you a little bit about the history of this word paradigm shift, this, this phrase. 
Uh, paradigm shift is a relatively new phrase. It was uh, popularized by a book by Thomas Kuhn, K-U-H-N. If anybody wants to go on and get the PhD in something and, and, and be an academic, then you need to read The Structure of Scientific Revolution, uh, Revolutions. It is a groundbreaking book, probably the, the largest, most influential, uh, most highly cited book in the world of the last 20, 30 years. So here's what Thomas Kuhn says in uh, this book. He says, when the theories of science change because of new evidence, there is what's called a paradigm shift. That's where we get the phrase from. This guy sort of coined that, that phrase. Here's what it is. There is a revolution in the filters for interpreting the evidence. And suddenly scientists who used to see the world a certain way see it an entirely different way because their mind has shifted to this new way of seeing reality. That's what Paul's describing here in these words. What you thought gave you life brought you death. If you're being sanctified into the image of God, you understand that, you know that, you felt that in your bones, and you start to have a mindset that loves what is good and right and comes from God's heart. That's what a mindset looks like. Let me illustrate this a little further. There's an example of this mindset in uh, mindset change in the field of neuroscience. Uh, neuroscience is um, just studying the nervous system. And they have discovered sort of the hardwired biological elements of human empathy. They call them mirror neurons, M-I-R-R-O-R. It's the place where we uh, demonstrate empathy biologically. And they can sort of measure that in, uh, in the activities of the brain. So get this. <laughs> a few years after they discovered these mirror neurons, the very scientists who discovered them couldn't identify the incidents that led to their discovery because their vocabulary and their way of talking about what had been the case was totally different. Let me say it this way. Their language and their metaphors and their way of speaking about this new reality had changed so dramatically that they could no longer even interpret their former laboratory notes that led them to the change in the first place. They couldn't even read their own writing. The mindset had so dramatically shifted to a different way of thinking about the brain that their interpretation was entirely new. Everything was completely different now. That's what Paul's saying a mindset is. It's not just, I want to, I'm going to try to will myself in a particular bent or inclination of the mind. It is certainly includes, certainly includes that, but it is so radically a mindset that what was life before in the flesh is dead to me. Doesn't even compute. Doesn't even make me excited. The things that were the lusts of the flesh that I thought that gave me life, that I thought produced in me excitement, that I thought gave me purpose, I look back on those now and I think, why would I even, why would I even want to do that? That's a mindset shift. When the Spirit is in you, you're so radically different that the desire of your heart is to do what you know will bring God glory. That's a mind shift. If you've come to this 
spiritual mindset, you will see everything that is good as coming from God. You will understand that what you called good from you might not have been as good as you thought it was. What you thought sometimes was good might have been pride. A mindset shift means everything good comes from God and now I get it and now I know it. Now I realize it. I hope you also see in that shift uh, some humility because humility has to be there if the Spirit's going to change us. Now don't just dismiss this mindset thing because the mind is where this battle for holiness begins. If you see the world after the flesh in the form of the things that bring death, they will produce death. Now this is not going to be hard to, to make practical. <laughs> there's, there's a real easy difference between somebody who sits in front of the TV and watches totally empty, uh, ridiculous, uh, frothy junk for hours on end. And I know that some of you on the inside are like, <laughs> that's me. <clears throat> there's a huge difference between spending hours a day watching culturally empty, frothy junk that's trying to make you into its image as opposed to spending time. I guess you guys get to be the spiritual bunch. You guys get to be the flesh bunch. <laughs> Apparently that's how it's working today. There's a big difference between that and spending time in word and prayer. What do you think your mindset's going to become? What do you think you will see when you see people? If you see people from the vantage point of flesh, all they're going to do is serve what your little lusts of the flesh are. So you better, you better go ahead and do that now because that's going to end soon. As opposed to people who are spirit-led, who look at people and they go, this person, this person was made in the image of God and, and deserves to be loved because Jesus died for them. And, and I want wholeheartedly to live my life just like Jesus did so I can sacrifice so this person can know the glory of God. That's a huge difference. That's a huge difference. That's an eternal divide between flesh and spirit. So don't dismiss this mindset thing. The battle for holiness is won first and foremost in the mind. We know that this is the case because those who don't have the mind of the Spirit die. Verse 8, he says it outright. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. If you're dead, your works are useless. But you, this is where he gets back to telling us who we are so that we can live what we are. Verse 9, if your mindset is on Spirit, verse 9, you, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells, lives in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness, because of Christ's righteousness lived for us, imputed to us through the Holy Spirit, because we have the spirit in us we can be alive verse 11 if the spirit of him who raised jesus from the dead dwells in you he who raised christ jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies the bodies that will die through his spirit who dwells in you so first he tells us to realize our justification is sort of a theological underpinning then he says you need to set your mind you have the mindset of the spirit then thirdly he tells us this and briefly we're just going to say a couple words about verses 12 and 13 here. He says, go ahead and participate with me through the Spirit in killing your sin. 
That's the admonition in 12 to 13. It says this. So then, in other words, as a result of all the stuff we've been talking about, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Verse 12 is a sort of restatement of verse 1. If you look at that carefully there, it's a reminder that we are not condemned. Paul says we are not debtors to the flesh. He's saying, remember remember who I'm telling you who you are. Remember what you have in Christ. You're no longer a debtor to the flesh. You're no longer a debtor to sin. And because of that truth, Paul says, we can now do battle against sin. Remember we said last week that a believer can be free to struggle. An unbeliever is not free to struggle. An unbeliever just has to give in to the flesh. There's, there's no recourse for somebody who is dead. Paul says we can do battle against sin. The believer is able to kill sin through the Spirit's work in us. If you follow Jesus Christ, the Spirit is killing your sin. Your natural sinful desires are lessening. And you are increasingly falling in love with the good things that come from God's heart. What Paul's telling us here is not rocket science. He's saying, don't forget what you have. Be who you are. Live what you have. What you have is riches of heaven brought down to us in the person of Jesus. Live out of that. That's who you are. That old life of self. Stop giving yourself to it. Stop setting your mind there. We talk about the three C's at First Christian a lot. Celebrate God. Cultivate growth. Communicate the gospel. Those are our ways. That's our language of talking about doing battle against sin, friends. When we're here in worship, we're celebrating God, who He is and what He's done in our lives. We're setting our minds. We're refocusing, recentering who we are on the truth of who God is and what He's done for us. When we're cultivating growth in relationship with Him and with one another, we have a, a place in us, a culture that creates in us because of the work of God in His Word and, and us in prayer and, and fellowship with one another. Support and encouragement to continue to be who God made us to be. So that we could communicate the Gospel by what we do and what we say. Not, not sort of a, a, as empty works. We've all tried that. That's a waste of time. That's a waste of energy. There's no fruit in that. What we want to do is become men and women who communicate the gospel in word and deed for real as a demonstration of the body of believers being a witness to what God has already done for us. The gospel's simple. It's simple. We have each one of us, number one, tried to do and be good. Each one of us, number two, infinitely failed in our flesh now we've experienced that death. Number three, God came to save us through the person of Jesus. 
infinitely making available to us His salvation through the Spirit, resulting in, number four, our ability to make known His goodness and glory as the body of believers, as a witness to the truth that the Gospel is real. Let's pray together.